Thank you, Jerry. And today we get to do what we love to do, and that's to look at our shepherd, to look at our good shepherd. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are those that can testify that everything John the Baptist said is, is true about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that we gather together as people as well as thousands upon thousands of congregations all across the world who gather together as the flock of God. They gather together who have been those who have been forgiven and received the love of Christ. Their sins have been washed away. And we look to our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, to lead us and to guide us and to instruct us and to comfort us and to give us wisdom. And we gather as the people of God, just as Jerry did a few moments ago, to intercede for those around us. We ask that God would be glorified and that wisdom would be multiplied, that the flock of God would grow, that many would come to know Him. And so this morning, we get to look further and more intently at our Good Shepherd. Now, this book of John, we could have presented this, and we could have had just a great time and had about a 40-hour sermon through the Gospel of John, but the elders rejected that proposal from me. So instead, we're walking through the Gospel of John text by text. And one of the sweetest components of that is to be able to sit a little longer in a text than we would just by taking it chapter by chapter in larger scale. But one of the difficulties can be that we can forget what's happened in previous chapters. But what I want to note for us, and I've been trying to do this intently, is as we go through the Gospel of John, there's so many threads from the first chapter that are woven all throughout. It's absolutely remarkable, absolutely stunning and beautiful, God's Word is. So this morning, you might consider this to be a continuation from last week's sermon as we look at our Good Shepherd. So church family, as we look at our Good Shepherd this morning, we're reminded in these three components that he will never be outnumbered. The Good Shepherd can never truly be outnumbered. He can never be outdone. Not only can he not be outdone, but the works he's done will never be undone. This is good news for us, beloved. This is our God. This is good news for us. So let's begin this morning as we look at this first component in verses 22 through 30 that our good shepherd will never be outnumbered. He will not be outnumbered. Now, when I say outnumbered, I mean in the sense of intimidated. He will not be ganged up upon. He will not be taken advantage of. It's impossible. Outnumbered in the sense that God showed Gideon. If you remember in the book of Judges, as God raised up as the people were wicked and did what was right in their own eyes, not simply the nations, but Israel, the people of God. They did what was right in their own eyes that God raised up continuous judges, a series of judges to show them their sin. They come to repentance and, and they walk with the Lord for about a generation. And then they forget God in this pulse line just continues again and again and again. And one of those judges is, is Gideon, if you remember Gideon. And Gideon uh, goes and God is going to ha have him lead Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And he begins with a force of 32,000 soldiers. And then it's whittled down to 10,000 soldiers. And then it's whittled down to, to 300 soldiers. And God tells Israel why he did that. For he tells them in Judges 7, 2 through 3, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. 
And Israel was reminded then, and we're reminded today as we look to the Good Shepherd, that He will never be outnumbered. Those who are in Christ cannot be outnumbered. They cannot be truly intimidated because we stand with the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd cannot be bullied. The Good Shepherd is who the flock of God look to. The Good Shepherd is who comforts the sheep. The wisdom, the strength, the comfort, the power of the sheep doesn't come in their own might. It would be strange to see a boastful, strong sheep among a lion, right? You'd be, if it was just kind of puffing its chest up, you'd be like, what's wrong with that, that sheep? That doesn't make any sense. Why would he or she be doing that? But, that's right, a sheep that draws near to its good shepherd who is strong, who has defeated lions and bears and wolves and all the enemies, that is a sheep who is confident. That's a sheep who has peace because their nearness to the Good Shepherd. That's what the Lord reminds them here. And that's what the Lord shows forth in this interaction with the Pharisees. They gather up on Him. So the time is fast-forwarded several months. It's the winter time. And they've gathered again for this festival. Now, something we've noted in the Gospel of John, we should have all seen this by now. Uh, If I was doing a better job pointing this out, we would have definitely seen this. But all these climaxes, all these big encounters with the Pharisees, here called the Jews, remember John does this, in a similar way that we might say, what's Washington up to? Or what's Moscow up to? You might assume that is the leadership of that area. So, so too, even though Jesus is, is Jewish and these disciples are all Jewish, he refers to them as the Jews. It's shorthand for the Jewish ruling authorities. And Jesus has gathered with his disciples and he's walking around the temple. And these interactions with the Pharisees happen at these massive playoff game moments. So if you're a sports fan, there is no preseason game in the Gospel of John. It's all highest, brightest lights. All of these scenes happen at the temple, at a synagogue, or at one of the feasts. That means that there's a crowd around. And here Jesus is, and what's he doing? He's walking along. And, and, and the Pharisees don't send one person at him, like Goliath and David. They come to him in mass, and what do they do? They gather around him. They're thinking they're going to catch Jesus off guard. And so this system is a system of shame and honor. This is important to understand in this first century world. Now, shame and honor, they certainly apply to today in our culture, in our place and time. Of course they do. But in the first century world, it is a shame and honor game. And every one of these interactions, there's a crowd around. And the crowd watches as the Jews gathered faithfully. And they see this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And there is shame and honor on the line. It amps things up. It, everything is amped up. And what happens at every one of these interactions so far is the Pharisees have left with their tail between their legs. And now they gather him. They have him outnumbered and they have him encircled while he's walking through the temple. But they made a mistake because this is Jesus' home turf. This is his father's house, right? This is his father's house. Not only is this his father's house, but John 1.3 told us that all things were created through him. All the earth and all of creation was created through Jesus. So, so it's all his home turf. They'll never catch him off guard. He is the word who was God and was with God in the beginning. 
He is truth in the flesh. And when somebody argues, not with somebody simply that has truth on their side, but if they argue with truth in the flesh, they're going to lose, right? And that's what happens again here at the very beginning. So we're reminded that those who stand with the Lord, the Lord can never be outnumbered. He can never be intimidated. He is faithful and true. And those who argue with truth will always leave humiliated or humbled. I don't know about you, but I've had my moments of arguing with God, of debating with God. And it it leaves one way with me being humbled and God being honored and glorified, right? Let God be found true and every man a liar. That's what Scripture exposes for us. God's Word, again, shows and proves itself to be right time and time again. That's the goodness of God. God is glorified in every scene and every interaction. And creation and the Pharisees and the crowd is left looking and saying, all honor and glory be to Jesus. All honor be to Jesus. Not to the brightest of bright religious leaders here, but to to Jesus. Again, again Jesus is true. And the sheep of God hear this and we say, amen. Not looking at us, but looking to Jesus. And that's what we do in every season, in every difficulty, in every trial. Look to Jesus. So if it's, a, if it's a conflict between family or friends or anyone else, a political division, we look to Jesus and we ask, Jesus, Jesus, you have to heal this. You have to give wisdom and insight. And just as Jerry prayed, Lord, give us love and wisdom as we do so. That's actually what we see in Revelation chapter 7. We get a sneak peek into this. As all creation gathers around the multitude. Let me read it. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Listen to this. Who gets all the honor? After this, John writes, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying what? Amen. Amen. That's the truth. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's our Good Shepherd, church family. When we forget that all honor is to go to God in every circumstance, in every trial, in every season, what's my purpose here? To honor and glorify God in this. What a question to ask ourselves was we ask God, we always ask God. In James 1, we always ask God for wisdom, right, Jeff? This brother prays for wisdom all the time. It's a joy to be in a small group. When we pray for wisdom as believers in circumstances who look for wisdom, what do we ask? God, how do I honor you in this situation? How do we honor you in this situation? For all honor and glory and power is yours. So help us to give you glory, honor, and depend upon your power today in this season. What does Jesus tell us about the sheep? The sheep hear his voice because he is greater. God will never be outnumbered, and therein they can never be lost. Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
Because our good shepherd is so great, none of his sheep will be lost. None of them. To accuse God of losing sheep is to accuse him of being a hired hand, who was the contrast with the Pharisees. We are secure. And what's the mark we see about the sheep? It says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. Now, we hear a multitude of voices every day. We talked about that a little bit last week. We hear a multitude of voices, but my sheep hear my voice. In Jesus' time as he's speaking, the Pharisees are hearing his voice. The crowd, the whole crowd is hearing his voice. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people heard his voice. And since then, billions of people have heard the voice of God proclaimed. So who are those who hear his voice? It's clear in the text, it's those who heed his voice. Who are the sheep of God? Who are those who actually hear his voice? It's those who heed his voice. What does he say? They follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow All of us who are believers have ultimately heeded the Word of God. We've come to repent, to turn from our sin and place our faith and trust in the care of the Good Shepherd. He's our King. He's our authority. He's our life. He's our forgiveness. He's our hope. That's good news. Those who hear are those who heed. Now, that doesn't mean we heed perfectly, for there's still a Good Shepherd. There's still a shepherd, and what does the Lord do to those whom he loves? He disciplines them, right? He disciplines them. Because you love them, you discipline them. Every parent and grandparent can relate to this. Every leader can relate to this. During feedback time, you love them, you give them discipline, you give them instruction. And that's what God does for his sheep. They perk up, they hear his voice, And when wise, they follow him. And when not, he will come for them. Not in simply a warning way, but a warming way. Can you relate to that? Have you ever had somebody love you enough to come alongside and expose a blind spot for you? Say, I don't know if that's what you're doing is not wise. I know what you're doing is not wise. You should not do that. They warned you, but the way they did so Because you knew they loved you, what did it do? It warmed you. You were left having sin exposed or faults exposed, and in the showing of that, you left being warmed. That's what the Good Shepherd does. Our Good Shepherd will never be outnumbered. Our Good Shepherd will never be outnumbered. And so what do the sheep of God do who hear this? we get a little closer to our shepherd. Secondly, our good shepherd, he will not be outdone. Verse 31 and 32 says, The Jews then, upon hearing this, they picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? At this point, I think it's fair to say that the Pharisees have Major League Baseball fever. They are missing Major League Baseball right now because they cannot pass a stone up for wanting to pick it up and launch it. Scene after scene after scene, they want to pick up a stone and 
exercise communal execution upon Jesus. So they go to pick up stones to kill him. And Jesus, does he respond with a 90 mile per hour stone? Is that what Jesus does? No. Does he pick up a sword? No. Jesus responds with a word. Jesus responds with a word, and it stops them in their tracks. Psalm 33, 9 says, God spoke, and the world came into being. God spoke, and the world came into being. Now, from a purely human standpoint, we would see a crowd who had gathered and gathered around Jesus. See, the Pharisees didn't want truth. They wanted the soundbite they needed to hear in order to kill him. They were hoping at the very least to walk away with honor in Jesus shamed and discredited. But what they really wanted was Jesus to say the right words to let them silence him for good. So they positioned themselves around him. And from a human perspective, we would say this is not good. Jesus just walked right into a, not only a trap of an argument, but a trap for his life. But Jesus... All things were created through him. God created man from the dust of the earth. And yes, God breathed life into man. But Jesus never panics, does he? As you read the Gospels, as we've spent time reading the Gospel of John, Jesus never panics. It's almost like he's the God-man. It's almost like all things really were created through him and for him and by him. It's almost like truly he has all honor and power and glory. And to him be all thanksgiving. It's almost like that's really what it is, isn't it? For he responds with a word and he makes them acknowledge that what he's done, all the works that Jesus has done are good and beautiful. He makes them admit that at the very beginning. Do you see what he said? He sees them going to pick up stones to kill him, and he says, for what of my works, what of the works that the Father has given me to do, are you going to kill me? And they have to respond with what? Well, it's not your works. Because even they, though they are the closest of critics, they have watched him like a hawk, dying to catch him off guard for the soundbite. Nothing that he has done, they can make an accusation. It's truly as though he is the blameless lamb of God. Because he is. Isn't that good news? His works will never be undone or outdone. And it leads them to give the reason for which they are going to kill him. Attempt to kill him very soon. He is the blameless lamb of God. So before we go into those, re that, those reasons, this argument that they're going to bring for why they want to kill him, we're reminded that, as John tells us later on, that Jesus did many more works than, than what he has recorded here. And all the works that Jesus did, he did that the Father had given him to do. One God eternally existing in three persons. We've talked about it before from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
There is one God, but that one also speaks of unity and purpose. The God of Scripture is unchanging. Politicians and governments and fads, they change. Generations, they shift and they change as they age. But God is unchanging. He is perfectly faithful and united in purpose and will. And the Father sent the eternal Son, one God, three persons, one what, three who's, we might say. And the Son took on the nature of a man, Jesus, fully God, fully man. And He perfectly did all the works that the Father had given Him. From healing the blind man, we saw just a short amount of time ago, to healing the lame man, to speaking the words that He was speaking, the words of life. So what does it elicit within the beloved? What does it elicit within the flock of God who are reminded that the works of God will not be outdone or undone? It leads us to rest in His works. Doesn't it? It leads us to say, Jesus, thank You for finishing what I cannot do. Thank You, Jesus, that I really am forgiven. I really am beautiful. I really am adopted. I really am Yours. I really am righteous and forgiven. I really am an an heir of yours in Christ. For even the Pharisees couldn't bring a legitimate accusation against what you've done. So Jesus will never be, our good shepherd will never be outnumbered or outdone. Third, our good shepherd will not be outsmarted. Our good shepherd, he will never be outsmarted. 33 through the end of the chapter. These Jewish leaders came to Jesus with the end of the story already written. Think about it. They set up a trap. They're waiting for Jesus to come along. He's walking in the temple. And they're waiting for Him to say, to make the claim that they've heard already before. That's already made them want to kill him multiple times. They're waiting for him to claim to be God. And they're going to kill him on the charge of blasphemy. It's all set. The time and the place and the positioning. They've gathered around him. Perhaps they planted stones around. But it's all set perfectly. There's no other way this story can end besides Jesus being killed. They've scripted it. They've written the story and they've sent it off to the publisher. But the great publisher, the editor, sent it back. He said, I'm, I'm going to rewrite what you did there. It's not his hour yet. Yes, he will take your shame. So the Pharisees, enraged, they aim to shift their shame onto Jesus as they say, we're, we're going to We're not killing you because anything you've done. You're guilty because the charge of blasphemy. You claim to be God, which tells us what? That Jesus clearly claimed to be God. So if you've not yet come to Christ, you have to look at His very claims. How many people claim alone to be God, let alone fulfill all the works that need to be done? Jesus did all of those things. And they charge Him for blasphemy. And it leaves them standing in this way of saying, we've got them right where we want them. 
But God is going to rewrite this ending to lead to the salvation of many. See, Jesus will take the shame of many, but He will take it on the cross where He will fulfill the great work that the Father had given Him to accomplish. Isn't that good? They wanted to put the shame on Jesus as they've been losing all these battles. Jesus will take their shame, but He will take it on the cross and he will lead many to salvation. That's what we'll see at the end of the story. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. I get excited on this stuff. You've got to be patient with me. So what do they accuse him of? They accuse him of being God. Actually, it says specifically, he makes himself God. We've seen earlier in the Gospel of John that twice, I think, there's been little nuggets in which it seems like the crowd, the unbelieving crowd, has put upon Jesus scandal with his birth. They look and say, that's Jesus. That's the son of Mary and Joseph. Uh, we weren't born how you were born. You're right. They weren't born how Jesus was born of the virgin, but they're looking and they're saying, no, 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 there was some stuff that happened there in which you were born out of wedlock. They're looking and saying, we know who you are, Jesus. You can't be God. And they deduce it like this. God is infallible. Think about it. God is infallible. And even though they follow Jesus and can't find anything wrong with anything he has done, they just admitted that, they still look and say it's impossible for God to be a man. Yeah, we don't have anything that you've done, but we've got something on what you've said because you cannot be God because you're a man. Therefore, you are fallible we now have the obligation of executing you. Second, God is all-powerful. They look at Jesus, they see Him sweating. They see Him needing to eat. Even though we've seen Jesus has already told us, quoting Deuteronomy 8, He lives not by bread alone, but by every word, doing the, the perfect will that the Lord has given Him to do. That's what He said back in John chapter 5 as well. His food is to do the will of Him who sent Him. But invariably, they conclude that you are a man, you cannot be God, so we are going to kill you. And what does Jesus do? He responds with a great authority. He quotes Scripture to them. He says, you all love Scripture. You believe the infallible God therefore has spoken, and everything the infallible God says will be infallible. So he quotes Scripture to them. And flip in your Bibles to, to Psalm 82. If you look at the footnote in John, you'll see a cross-reference in all likelihood to Psalm 82. That's what he quotes here. And in Jesus' quote, two things take place. Number one, he responds to them by quoting Psalm 82, 6, in which this text, a text of judgment upon the people, he quotes, God tells them, you are gods. So you have at least a case in which Jesus, doing good case law, he quotes from the Scriptures. Remember that word law? We think of the first five books of the Bible, but also law was given as a general statement for all the Old Testament Scriptures. And so he says, hey, y'all love the Scriptures, right? Y'all love God? Y'all hold this as your ultimate authority? Well, you know about Psalm 8-6, right? And he quotes it. So in one step, he humbles them, but in the second step, he quotes a text that deals with judgment upon Israel, in which Israel is left because of the partial judgments crying out for God to bring judgment because he's the only one that can actually do it not those who have been allotted different authorities 
So let me read this for us. He does two things in this one statement. It's absolutely incredible. Psalm 82. A psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? What were they charged by God to do that they did not do? Look at verse 3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And what does Jesus quote? Verse 6. I said, you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. I believe this is, there's a discussion of who exactly is he speaking to here, of the you are God's or this divine council. I think in this certainly in response to the context of the Jewish leaders having trouble believing that it would be possible that God be a man. I think this is a text referring to, referring to Israel. Israel, who God had blessed and made a people as his own possession to be a blessing to the nations as they reflected him and mirrored him. And that's what Deuteronomy 1.17, when God told them, says God told his people not to be partial in judgment. And what happened with Israel, all the corruptions of the nations, the pagan nations, begin to be reflected in the nation of Israel. And God in this brings judgment to them. Like God who has dominion and rule, he gave them dominion and rule on the earth. And they abused it. And they're left crying out in verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Jesus, in quoting this, destroys their argument that nowhere is God referred to, is man referred to as God with that language? And secondly, now Jesus isn't a man, Jesus is the eternal God-man, God who has become a man, two natures. But he's also spoken judgment to these hired hand shepherds. That he is the judge of not only Israel, but of all the nations. And he is the one we depend upon and rest in and abide in. And what does this lead to take place? They still want to kill him. But Jesus gets away. Again, his hour has not yet come. Jesus gets away. And where does he go? He crosses over to the Jordan back where John the Baptist and, uh, had been teaching and working. It says this in verse 40, back in John chapter 10. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing at first. And there he remained, and many came to him. We have no reason to think that the many here who came to him were not many of the many who were there to hear the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. So, think about the scene. They gathered to bring shame on Jesus. And the story ends with many of the crowd who saw this not only seeing shame upon the Pharisees for their shady tactics, but all honor to Jesus, so much honor to Jesus that they leave the temple 
during this festival, and they follow after Jesus. Upon following him, they remember the things that John the Baptist had taught years before. And they say this, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Man set apart the most evil of traps, and it leads to glory and honor and salvation for many. Joseph said it like this, what man meant for evil, God used for good. That's our Savior. That's our God. Next week, Romans going to lead us through chapter 11 with Lazarus, in which this is shown in incredible depths. That man will desire things of evil, and yet God will be glorified. So sheep, flock of God, what does this do for our hearts and our souls? It leads us and it warms us to get closer to our shepherd. And if you don't know Christ, come and believe upon him. Follow him and give your life to him. He is our good shepherd. In him we have life. Amen, church? Amen. That's good news. Next steps. Two next steps components. The first, the sheep's confidence and peace do not come from our own might, but the might of our shepherd. So here's a challenge this week. Every day, every morning, all of us do this, regardless of our ages, every morning, before you touch a device, the average smartphone user will, will have 76 sessions on their smartphone a day. We'll touch our phones over 2,000 times a day. We'll touch it. Before we go to grab it for one of those sessions in the morning, spend time boasting upon your God. Spend time boasting in your and our great shepherd, our good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. Just spend time boasting in him right when you wake up because he's worthy. And finally, let us hide Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 in our hearts this week. A challenge to work to memorize this text together, to hide it in our hearts and listen to Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, justice according to God's righteous standard, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Oh God, would you be glorified as your sheep long to draw near to you. Isn't that good news, church family? Let's stand together as we respond in song to the Lord. If you don't know Christ, confess Him.